This week, due to technical difficulties, I have, for the second time, Flair Champ, musical troubadour, and now life coach, it's Oliver Pluck. Three, thank Three. you. <laughs> Cheers, your second time, yep. Yeah. I think uh, second time lucky, huh? I remember sending you a message a while back, arranged to meet up in Leeds for a chat, and then a couple of days later I got a voice message from you saying, I haven't really got time, I've got to pack all my stuff up in London and Leeds, and I'm moving to Australia on Tuesday. How did that sudden move come about? And tell me how it brought you into being a life coach. <laughs> it sounds really silly like that. It, it sounds more bonkers the more I look back on things, you know. I had I had two bars in Leeds. And obviously my first bar is more in the student area, which we're kind of sat in now. So it's quiet in the summer. So I always thought I needed a second bar, more money, more. And I was hell-bent on recognition, dude. Um, hell-bent on recognition. I wanted to innovate and do these things and have people from the industry kind of look at me. And that, that's where I got my kind of fulfillment from, I suppose, from other people's kind of um, acknowledgement. And then I opened this bar in the city centre. And then I always thought I wanted awards. And then we won eighth best cocktail bar. And it meant nothing. So I was like, what do I do with my last lesson? I'm not sure if I can swear or not. <laughs> and then I was like, I need, I need to, I need to change this direction. So my girlfriend at the time, we, we split, split up shortly later. But then I moved down to London, took a consultancy job. I was working for a large uh, restaurant group. I had like 600 restaurants. So I was down there for like a year. So I had, so I was doing four days in London, living in London, had a flat down there. And then I came up here and I had a flat in Leeds. Which, the cost of that alone was, I can remember, just exorbitant. And then I had the, a bar that I wasn't spending time at because I didn't want to be at. I actually hated it. I've come, come to resent the bars themselves. So I was down in London, kind of living, I kind of was like forgetting about the life I had. And then when I was working for this restaurant chain, I flew to Shanghai to open up a restaurant. And a friend of mine was in a, in a, in a spot of bother. Um, he had a bar in Melbourne and he was going through a real rough patch. And my friend said, I think you should go and see your mate. Um, you know, he's going through a hard time. So I phoned him up and said, I like, listen, I'm, should I come and see you? And he just kind of pleaded with me and said, Ollie, just come and see me. I need you, I need you, you know? And when a friend really you haven't seen in a while reaches out and says, I'd really like to see you. Like, right, cool, done. <laughs> so I flew to Melbourne and the same day that I, I actually changed my dates to flew in so I could actually arrive for his birthday, met a girl, as you do. And then when I came back, you know, we kind of started up this long distance relationship. And obviously I wanted to get out of bars and I ended up selling the, the bar in the city centre. I literally gave it away for seven grand. All included, there's the keys, take it now. You can have a working fitted bar, tilt system, so everything, seven grand. Which also put me back in like 20 grand's worth of debt. But I, to, just to have the, not have that weight, I'd rather pay, you know, the, that money was, wasn't worth anything, you know, could follow my livelihood in my life. And I looked to get a visa to get to Australia, like start a new fresh and no one really knows, you like, because I was over 30, I applied for a friends and family visa which means you can go there, but you can't work. But of course, I still have the East Village and stuff, and, and so I was like, you know what, I'll go there, and I know enough people to get work under the table, and I was doing a lot of filming. Back in my head, I was kind of discovering what I wanted to do, and I wanted to help people, and I knew that. I knew that from like, I turned vegan, and I wanted to help animals, and I was, there was this urge to kind of help others, but I needed to help myself first, you know. I was going through a lot of trauma inside. I didn't, I didn't know what's the purpose of life? And I think that's a question many people ask, like, why am I here? What's the purpose of life? So that was the path I set out on. I thought I've got a year in Australia, maybe slightly longer to work out what's the purpose of my life. And there was a lot of soul searching. So I started doing this life coaching course and I used it for myself. It was a teacher course, but everything that you have to do or everything it was telling you to do, I did on myself first. And I really submerged myself in that. And it turns out that I just discovered this, this whole new person. And whilst I was doing that, I also discovered that 
you know, going through my trials and tribulations, I've got, you know, I've had problems with owning bars and hospitality, drink, drugs, you know, there's, some, there's a real dark patch to there, you know, that's always kind of on the surface. And it turns out I had bipolar. Yeah. <laughs> Something that I'd never realised and I wasn't aware of because my, my workaholic kind of aspects in the bar industry were covered by like my hypermanias and the lows were covered by my, my drinking and my come downs and you know. So as I got to Australia and I stopped, finally stopped drinking and I was like, you know, and I saw um, a specialist and they're like, yeah, you got like type two bipolar. When we looked into it, like I, I'm not sure, I'm a hoarder. We're sitting at the bottom, <laughs> of, the bottom of the bar now. And buy, buying, spending money and buying random shit is like, is a, is a, is a classic trait of bipolar. And my dad, when I told my parents, you know, he was like, that explains why you bought that Russian video camera at a car boot fair. You know, I was like, <laughs> I've still got it. It's, it's over there, actually. <laughs> it's an old VHS thing. So I'm just, yeah. And so I found myself in this great city in Melbourne. And then I started studying and I discovered more about myself. And then before I knew it, I was like, well, I think I'm ready to start helping other people. And basically what I do now is I kind of, I work with other people trying to find self-sabotaging habits, people that, that want to achieve goals. And we find out where the limiting beliefs are and how they can achieve that goal. So let's go back to the beginning. Where were you born? Can you describe what the area was like, the house you lived in, the surrounding area, that sort of thing? Yeah, I grew up in a, in a small little village called Lancarven uh, in Wales. And it was a tiny little village. It had a post office that was the size of a bathroom uh, and, and a pub called the Fox and Hounds. And that was literally it. It had a school, it was 200 years old, that had 60 people in it from the ages of four to the ages of 10. So a very tiny village, everyone knew everyone. Yeah, and it was just a, it was a great place to grow up. Like growing up in Wales, I was actually growing up in this little tiny village. You kind of, you know, you spent a lot of Sundays in pubs. But we used to we used to cause a lot of mayhem. We used to go on little skirmishes out in the valleys, and we used to, there's a lot of set of fire to bins. You know, not houses, but just bins. It was, it was controlled uh, arson. But yeah, it was. They were good times, man. Yeah. I lost your eyebrows, Peter. <laughs> I did definitely lose my eyebrows a few times. You know, if you play with fire, you definitely get burnt. Yeah. Like you don't speak Welsh. Is that a thing for like mainly because you're from the south of Wales? That it's more English speakers down there. Or? Yeah. Like, there's any well, the northern like North Wales people listening? Like, <laughs> I call it fake Wales because I was because I'm from South Wales. It's compulsory to speak Wales up to the age of like 12. So the first like two years of your year, yeah. When am I ever gonna need Welsh? But then you go to North Wales. Like my friends from real. And he speaks fluent Welsh. But yet, when I went to Rill, everyone's, because it's so close to the, like, the Wirral and, and Liverpool, yeah. everyone's scouser. So I went up there and I went to a bar and this guy's like, are you me talking to go in? And I was like, what? Like, it's kind of this weird mix of scouse with, yeah. But I, 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 it's my biggest regret, actually. Because when I moved to England at the age of 14, slowly my Welsh accent kind of tailed off. Because I was kind of like semi-bullied at school because of my accent. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember going to myself, I'm going to lose it. But I lost it. And then when you hear like people like Tom Jones and Kelly Jones and the Stereophonics, there's a little part of me that's really kind of... Wish I still had that. <laughs> wish I still had that. And I just spent like a week down in Wales with my mum and dad. And I was, I was chatting to like people. And sometimes was, I noticed myself speaking like little dialects and little words. But um, yeah, growing up in Wales, I'm very proud to be Welsh, you know, especially when the rugby plays and stuff, you know. <laughs> and what did your parents do for a living? Um, my mum and dad, they were, they, they were in, in the travel industry. Uh, that's how they met back in the day, my dad's. And they, they went on to own their own travel agency and my dad was like the trading manager for like First Choice and Tui. That's why we moved up. So we, we always kind of, we were quite lucky and fortunate to go away, like, for instance, like holidays in Spain, Ibiza and stuff when we were kids. But in Barry, where my dad's shop was, 
you know, back in the day, you could trade flights. Like he would get like an Arga stove that was worth 800 quid. You'd trade it for a week uh, for, for a week in Marbella, you know, like, <laughs> but you can't do that anymore. But like, it's uh, the stories that they, that they, they tell about traveling and stuff. And I think that maybe that's where I got it from, my little travel bugs, you know? Yeah. So. I believe your dad gave you a job at, at one point. <laughs> oh, I don't know why. I honestly <laughs> have no idea why. I was 16 and I, I got a job working for British Airways, Air Miles, and I didn't pass my probation. But I was on really good money. It was weird. Like, I think I got my first paycheck. And this is like 1998. First paycheck was like £1,800. And I was like, what do you mean 17 years old? And they were like, way. But then I didn't, get, I didn't keep that because I, uh, I was pretty bad at it. Um, but then my dad's like, I'll give you a job working at First Choice. And there was a, there was a time when, uh, which is famous, I booked 50 golfers out. I'd reserved the, uh, the outbound seat I'd sent out and I'd reserved them. So they print the tickets and sent them. So the outbound I'd confirmed, but the inbound I hadn't. So when they'd flown out, after seven days, the inbound had just cancelled itself. So all these people, the, the, the outbound flight was correct and like fine. So one Sunday, like my dad gets this call on his day off and he's like, uh, Jim, we've got a problem. So what's the problem? He's like, they've got 50 golfers coming back from like Portugal and they're all stuck and we can't fly them. We've got to, we've got to fly five into thingy. And he's like, I want to know who made that booking, why it failed. And they were like, it was your son. And he was like, what? And I was like, but I still kept my job. If it was anyone else, and I, I do love my dad for that, but um, yeah, I, I did it for the summer. And yeah, I was just, I used to drum. I, was, I remember I was drumming on a desk, like, and I remember like this big CEO coming down and just going, can you stop? drumming on the desk <laughs> and I was like I don't honestly that my name must have been but my dad was gold you know he got he got a pay rise he got promotions and I didn't have any effect on that so I, I think I guess you how good he was were you a good student when you were at school no I was terrible I was the worst I hated school I actually I was good at it till about 11 and this is this is a really interesting point I was kind of really good and then you leave primary school primary is fucking easy you know and then you go to comprehensive school and in comprehensive school, I was that clown of the class Joker, da, da, da. but what you don't realise is when I was nine and a half, I had something. I was diagnosed with something called Perthes disease. So the left hip, my left hip, where, where the ball meets the socket, the oxygen can't get to the hip, so the hip bone deteriorates. So I was in, I was in hospital for two weeks um, in traction, so I couldn't move the bed. My, my legs were on weights. Then I got out and I was in a wheelchair, so I had both my legs then plastered and I with a broomstick in between them. And I was in a wheelchair for two months. And that was all just before I went to comprehensive school. And before that, I was, like, really into gymnastics. I was really, like, active. So it's interesting when I look back and I was like, you know, I was actually really good at school. And then I, I had this disease. And then when they said, well, you can't go to the wheelchair in, in Wales because the comprehensive school, because it's all stairs everywhere. So they said, well, we'll take you up, you know, we'll put you in a sling. So my left leg was in a sling and I was on crutches for three years. So my whole sports career gymnastics had gone I, and I knew that I wouldn't get that back because I knew this is this is a four-year disease if not the hip bone snaps and you have to have hip replacement surgery at 11 years old or 12 you know and no one clocked this back then you've got a kid who's got a disease on his hip his life is kind of being stripped before him. he can't do anything if you'd worked with me there's certain teachers that work with me and I got they got great results but you know what I mean there was I was kind of playing up there and that just kind of escalated and when we moved up to England my brother was a phenomenal singer that ended up going to have lead roles in the West End they're like do we move Ollie in the middle of his GCSEs or my brother because it's different curriculums so then of course they moved me 
brother went to the Brit School of Performing Arts, this new fancy school that just opened. I went to another comprehensive school. I knew at the age of 14, 15, that because I went to England, I'd have to resit my GCSEs in two years. So everything I did was redundant anyway because I'd missed whole years of curriculum. So I think I gave up at school before I even had a shot at it, you know, if that makes sense, like between Perthes disease. And I didn't think about that time. It's only like regressing back now doing coaching that I was like, no wonder I was shit at school. No wonder I hated it. No wonder I played up for the teachers. No wonder I did all this because what, what, what chance did I get? Tell us about you moving over to the TGA Fridays and how that started your bartending career. So, yeah, literally, when I left school, you know, like, me and my mates, of course, 17, 18, 19, 17, 18, you just, just want to drink in the pub at the weekends. You know, there's this new freedom where you're like, hey! And I went to school in a place called Oxted in Surrey, and there's a place called Old Oxted, and it's just, like, about eight pubs up a hill. So we used to go and hang out there, and, I, and obviously I, I love bars. I love the social aspect of being in a bar, the, you know, chatting to people. And my dad had just let me go. I was working with my dad that summer, and TGI Fridays had just opened. And they were like this big American company. We're talking about 1998 now, you know. There was no cocktail bars like it. Even hotel bars weren't that, you know, that good. They used to have a menu with like 230 drinks. It was all about personality. Like these larger lives. Hi, how you doing? And anyway, I remember going for the interview and the guy was like, you're too young. And I was like, well, no, you guys are Fridays. You have your own training style. I'm fresh. I don't have any bad habits. And they were right. So I got trained to a really high standard and I just, I just loved it. I loved every aspect of it, you know, chatting to people. And the, my trainer said to me, it's almost like being a spy, you know, because what they didn't just, you didn't just serve people. They wanted you to extract information from people. So the things where if someone would come through the door, my trainer would go to me, I want you to try and guess by the way he looks, by his shoes, by his watch, you know, what does he do for a living? Who is he? And then we'd have a competition. You go, and then you'd go over and you go, hey, how you doing? What's your name? He'd be taken back. He'd go, John, John, how you doing? My name's Rick. And he, and he would start this conversation. And at first I was like, how the hell is he doing this? But then that's, and I got really good. And within two years, I, I was second in the UK at Flair. Um, and I was headhunted to go and open up the Emirates Towers in Dubai. Should probably just explain a bit what Flair is. Cause... Yeah, that's a really good idea. So obviously for those who haven't seen the film Cocktail, it, Flair is, Flair, people think it's throwing bottles, but it's not. Flair is is the persona. It's, it, it encompasses everything that you, you kind of oozes out of you in, in the way of performance. So Flair could be me throwing a bottle, like throwing a glass by my back, making a drink with certain je ne sais quoi, you know, Flair. But also Flair is the ability to like in bars, you work on a station, that's your station. It's not like pubs where everyone crosses over and serves everyone and it's a fucking mess. You have your station, you keep it clean, you keep it tidy, and you serve people in this station. So your ability to serve, hey, how you doing, John? My name's Ollie, blah, blah, blah. Oh, who's, who's your friend? Cool. Then you'd introduce people that were sat at the bar. So, hey, John, have you met Phil? Phil's, uh, Phil's in aviation as well. Oh, cool, where are you from? I'm from Korea, you know. Because in Crawley, TJ Fires was near Gatwick Airport. So it was such an American thing. You used to get pilots in there. You would get, it was so well known, you'd get stewardesses. You'd get, if you had a layover in Gatwick and you were staying at the Crown Plaza, I was like, well, why should I go tonight? You know, God, teach our down the road. And everyone kind of knew that as a, I'd get a good drink there. So flair was just how you, how you were. You, flair, I know great flair bartenders, they were just awesome with their mouths. Great banter, you know, their ability. So flair's a little bit of everything really tell us some of the other tricks that you have for like creating good customer experiences about tender like things that you do maybe actions or things that you say or whatever that, that gives people that makes people feel that they're uh, special special yeah so like coming from tgi fridays because it's an american company tgi fridays used to be a singles bar 
because the bars used to be like three deep, really busy, it was all about acknowledging, 30 second acknowledgement. So if you come to the bar, you go, hi, how you doing? I'll be with you in a second. And as soon as you say that, you put the napkin down. So that's a physical bit of something to let someone know, oh, I've got a napkin, this is mine, this belongs to me, he knows where I am. And people will wait 10 minutes as long as you've acknowledged them. So like there's times in a bar where I've gone, hello, I'll be with you in a second, cool, I'll be with you, I'm just serving this guy, I'm just gonna serve this guy. But if you have the ability to go, I'm just serving this guy, this guy, or if you can go, I'm serving John, Terry and Thingy. You might have only met John, Terry and Thingy once before, but they're impressed that you've remembered their name. They've already know they're being served, and then you turn around and go, I'll be with you in one second, I'm just serving these guys here. I've had people go, mate, I'm happy to watch. Because you're putting on a show. So when you're making drinks, and people can see you're working your ass off, you're going as fast as you can, things like those little napkins, and you used to have what's called like a calling order. So you'd have to make drinks in certain orders. So like you wouldn't make a draft, pour draft first. It was the last thing you did. You know, you would make blended drinks first because the blender takes ages to go. So, you know, and people used to go, no, I'm, I'm more than happy. And it was awesome to watch. And you could introduce people to, to each other. So if you knew John was, like I said, in aviation, you go, oh, this is Cliff. Cliff works for Virgin and he, and he, and he, and he a bit of shareways. You go, oh, do you know the thing? And it turns out they'll sit at the bar four hours and that was called corner bar theory fridays was really big on theories so you'd have corner bar theory if you got because all their bars were square like an island bar so if you've got two people sat at a bar introduce them to each other and then you would move on to the next guests so it was all about creating harmony and you want people to stay at your bar all night and spend money and in the beginning in the very front of the friday's bartending manual it the first thing it says it's it's pretty much a it says win 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 and it, it explains how bartenders are not bartenders they're salespersons it's so american but it's like you're not a bartender you're a salesperson and it talks about upselling and like things like that and it, get people to sit at your bar so i gotta take my half it's not the same company it is now but it was a phenomenal place to work in 1990 well 19 98 I can't get my, my numbers out 1998 and I you know what coming from school I finally found that I had purpose and what was it like when you moved to Dubai Dubai was awesome like everyone said don't go why are you going to Dubai for it's a dry country and now I'm kind of glad I did because most people I was like nothing it doesn't all revolve around alcohol to be able to work for a five-star hotel like the holiday inn was like the most all I knew you know and to see what was happening out there I thought this is I knew it was going to be special because the Burj Al Arab was literally being like the first only seven-star hotel. We were going to train the bartenders for that as well. So I was like, this is a kind of slice of history and this will kind of put me on the map for bartending. They'd employ, they needed four flair bartenders, like showcase bartenders that were really like, they'd have loads of other like bartenders to fill out things. Like we worked with Filipinos, Indians. Then these guys got paid nothing, man, you know. They would take it, they would like be two people on a station and we, like the, us four, would have our own stations and we'd be like the Western show, showcase people, you know. But I was on really good money for 19 years old. I had this, I was the same grade manager as a general manager, which people found out later, like there's a French guy who's like 45, like not in a Michelin style restaurant, but he was, and he realized that like, a 19 year old kid who throws bottles was on the same grade as him. He lost his shit. <laughs> he really lost his shit. So I was, I was really privileged. And I remember good times. So coming out of, you know, not paying council tax, having a nice flat, pool on the roof of where I lived, you know, transport to and from work. And Dubai just being, you could walk into any bar in Dubai at that time and everyone knew everyone. 
because of expats and because we worked in the newest, coolest bar. We were, we were advertising the bloody radio in Dubai. Come to Scarlet's and see. You know, it was like, it was, um, it was bonkers. And because I was 19, I couldn't drink. I wasn't old enough to drink. But HR went to, to see whoever they needed to see. Not Sheikh Mohammed, but they got a sign off from quite high up that this is, this is Sheikh Mohammed's new pride and joy. We've got this kid that we need and he's not 21. Get him in. <laughs> you know, so it was uh, it was a really good. So I got some really fond memories of uh, Dubai. When I first flew there to live there, the lady said to me, "Would you like to pre-book your seats?" This is during the check-in line, and I was like, "Yes, oh yeah, that'd be great." And then she said, "Do you want smoking or non-smoking on the flight?" And I was like, "A whole European airlines is banned smoking because it was a UAE airline." So I was one of the last people. Oh, I'm lucky to. I sat at the back of the plane, smoking, drinking champagne at 19. You know, I think that's another thing. I, I smoked on a plane, tick. It just <laughs> seems bonkers now, but yeah. You won the first ever Zante Flair comp back in 2005. What's your biggest achievement or award in Flair? Zante is the only Flair comp I've ever won. Bizarre, because like I remembered like competing with my top off. You know, because it was so hot. It was outside, there was no shade. It's like 38 degrees. And everyone knew us back then because of the, the, we worked in a place called Rescues, and which was had a really good reputation. So the following was really good. So you had all these people around you on this stage on a beach. And the setting was phenomenal. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't floor, floor it at all. When you talk about achievements, there's a film called Tin Cup. People might not know it, with Kevin Costner. My whole method behind that, which I kind of learned at a young age, was when I first went for my ever first flare comp, because Fridays, they were up and down the country, and everyone knew who you were because of Fridays, and Fridays stuck together. So when I first went on stage, this just wasn't choreographed. People, someone just shouted, Ollie, Ollie, Ollie. And then everyone was like, Oi, Oi, Oi. From nowhere, like 500 people at Roadhouse, and when you're young, and you've got everyone screaming your name, it's the best feeling in the world. Like, and it wasn't choreographed, it just happens. And then it, that just evolved to be a thing. When I went Roadhouse, I used to have this trick where I'd bounce a bottle off my arm and then it would just flip over and I'd bounce off my knee and I'd catch it off its spun on my hand. And I had this trick and some people, if you dropped the bottle, if you, if you spilled the bottle, you'd get penalized for it. But I had so many big tricks and big moves. My whole method was go big or go home. Go big, because people will remember you for the big move you did. So in this film, Tin Cup, at the end of the film, you've got this kind of, Kevin Costner plays this golf pro, and he's trying to beat this big guy. And his caddy says to him, like, you can win this. Just, and he's like, just drive it up there. He's like, I don't want to drive it. I want to go for the hole in one. For, you know, across the water. And the guy's like, don't do it, man, don't do it. And he tries, takes a shot, and he misses. And it rolls back and goes in the water. So he goes, give me another ball. He goes, if you hit this now, you've lost. You can only draw. So he hits it, rolls back in the water. And then, then he gets to the point where he's lost. Next ball he takes, you've lost it. And his caddy walks away. He's like, you lost it. So he keeps kept the balls. And he's got one ball left in his bag. And he hits it and eventually gets it in. And the guy says to him, why did you do that? You've just lost the competition. He's like, yeah, but in 20 years time, everyone will remember that Roy McIlroy got the hole in one on the 18th hole at bloody so-and-so. But no one will remember the guy who won. So years later, I did, this, I did this competition just to prove that I was right. Like, I used to come off and everyone was like, oh, I loved your routine. I never won. I maybe came third or second, but I never actually won because I'd always go for the bigger move. So years later, um, I was organising the Roadhouse uh, Continent and this guy goes, I remember when you bounced a bottle off your knee. No, I remember you threw a bottle over your shoulder and you stalled it on your foot. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I remember that. He goes, mate, that was awesome. I remember that was just beautiful. And I was like... 
quick question, can you remember who won that competition? And the guy goes, nah, not a clue. <laughs> I always said that to people, like, if you want to be remembered for something, it's not always about winning. You made it to the final of the Bacardi Legacy. I read a bit about you touring the country with your signature cocktail. Can you tell me more about that and your publicity that you did for it? Yeah, I can't give you a bit of a background. Like, Bacardi uh, has the mojito, you know, like if you go back to history in Cuba uh, before they got exiled. They have the mojito, the Cuba Libra, they've got um, the daiquiri, all these like Bacardi-based cocktails. So Bacardi Legacy is about you coming up with your own cocktail and your legacy. So it's kind of a platform to boost you. The initial stage is you, you, you submit your drink, if, you, if they like your drink and they like your story, which is, the story's obviously just as much as important behind the drink. It's not just about creating a drink, it's about a concept, you know, behind it, because you have to market that. If you come up with a good drink, they'll like it, you'll go through, through a regional rounds, you'll compete. If you win the regional rounds, you go through to like the UK final, and there's six people in the UK final. And then if you win the UK final, three people win. So you kind of get down to top three. And those three people, you go what's called the three most promising. Then they give you three months each, give you two grand, and you have to... But in the, sorry, in the UK final, you don't just, in the daytime, you don't just compete at six of the world, the UK's best. You have to just sit in front of a marketing team and say what you're going to do for the next three months and how to market it. So you get judged on your performance on the night and your marketing plan. So then I won along with a guy called Santi from Happiness Forgets and a guy called Ian from um, Dandelion in London. Now to point out, Dandelion was voted world's best bar. It's when world's best cocktail menu. It's on the South Bank. It's underneath the bloody five-star hotel, um, the Mondrian. And I've been out of the industry for 10 years. Santi, Santi was from Happiness Forgets, which was in the top 10 world's best bars. And then there was me from the East Village. And I, I'd been out of the industry for so long. I just opened the East Village and I did it to put, it, to put us on the map. Little did I know that in the top three there would be these world's best bars and me from a dive bar in, in Hyde Park in Leeds. <laughs> so we went, so the cocktail was called Amistad, which stands for friendship. It was the first time that um, the Americans and the Barack Obama went to Cuba and they were kind of building up this kind of, I'd say trade or friendship that kind of connecting those kind of broken bridges from years ago you know each um spirit like the bourbon represented america the the gold run represented cuba but then there was amontillado sherry which represented when the spanish were in uh cuba you know there's all these kind of little nods to things and that was my concept it was all about friendship raise the glass to friendship so my concept was asked for amistad i came up with these playing cards the drinks were on menus all up and down the country all over the world and you had this card where you filled your details out and you took your view Instagram, you'd get um, a free holiday and stuff. So it was a really like good experience. And annoyingly, it was one of those things where um, a friend of mine said to me, just to let you, in the beginning competition, just let you know there's politics involved here. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, Ollie, it's Bacardi, it's the UK, you're up against Dandelion, which is probably one of their biggest contracts or the contract that they want to get. And Ian Griffiths is like, he's like a golden child in the industry with them. And I was like, okay, cool. So it's like, what can you offer them and what can they offer them? And I was like, okay. So when I did the competition, everyone turned around to me and said, oh, you've won this. You've won, you've won. And you kind of, you buy into that because you're constantly tracking what someone else is doing. And then when it got to the, the finals, in the heats and in the end of it, one, one person is, is, was in charge in Bacardi for marking everything. And I was like, well, that seems a bit unfair that one person and turns out I didn't win 
and I was absolutely heart-wrenched, gutted. Like, I, I, I couldn't make my drink. I didn't make my drink for two weeks after that. Because you, you, you've literally, because the process is six months long. By the time you've entered the comp, even the guy that won it in, went in, in a publication said, I thought Ollie Pluck should have won. <laughs> Which, for me, I, am, I, am, I love him to bits for saying that. You know, he went on to do a phenomenal job in the bars that he worked at. He's just an incredible human. But by him saying that gave me closure. Stitched up like a kipper. <laughs> How did you get the royal wedding gig? What was the queen like? Queen, small. Small and posh. <laughs> uh, had royal wedding gig. That was, a, that, was a, that was a doozy. When I used to work at Beer, I used to work at this bar. This one, this bar in Batsy Rise called Beer One, which is now a, a massive chain. But there was only there was like one of them, you know? And there's this guy called Small Paul that used to collect glasses. <laughs> Little legend. He, was, he played, this guy played the artful Dodger in Oliver in the West End. You uh-huh. know? <laughs> And he was a little geezer. And he ended up going, like, after glass collecting for me, years later, he ended up going to operations manager for a company called Esprit. So they got the front of house contract for the Royal Wedding because they were based in Knightsbridge and stuff. And Mossiman's, um, Mossiman's family did a lot of cooking for the, for the Royal family. They had the catering side of things, so they were working together. So they were sat in a, a, in a room talking about, right, we need someone to do the cocktail consultancy for the Royal Wedding, you know. We've had initial chats with uh, Kate and Wills, and they, they wanted drinks like Sex on the Beach, Margaritas, B-52s, Jaeger Bombs. Um, we need someone to do the cocktail consultancy. I don't know who can do it. And my mate's gone, I do. And he's like, who do we do? Well, we can't use Diageo. We can't use Brown Foreman because um, non-disclosure agreements. We need it. We want someone that's just an individual. This guy goes, I know, Ollie Pluck. Ollie Pluck, who's Ollie Pluck? And then he's like, oh, he's, he's the best, he's the best. And this is just a glass clip that I work with. He's, 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 you know, I love him for it. So then this lady said to me, and I was down doing a roadhouse and organising, she said, let's go have a coffee. And this was like a Sunday, and we met on the South Bank, and I was like, hey, how are you? Love to meet you, please meet you. And we'd exchanged some phone calls before then, so. She's like, I've got a proposal for you, Oliver. I was like, I've got a gig that's coming up on the 23rd of April or something, you know. I was like, yeah. And she's like, are you doing anything on that day? And I was like, yep. I'm, uh, I've got a gig with my band. It's just like it's the royal wedding, so we're playing in this beer garden in Huddersfield or Halifax or something like. And she's like, "Oh, right, okay. Is your band important to you?" Or like, kind of like digging a little bit. And I was like, "Okay, I'll ask you again." And I was like, "What are you doing on the 23rd of June? Because I have this gig that I'd like you to do, and I want you to do this gig." And I was like, "You should not listen to what I'm saying." Unfortunately, I've got my own gig. Playing, I'm playing a band called Pocket Three. Da, da, da. And she kind of, she like dropped her shoulders and she sighed and she's like, do I really have to ask you again? And I was like, and I was like, what am I not missing? And she was like, she's like, I have a gig. And I was like, hold on a second. And you see like, yes. It's like, is your gig the reason that I'm playing at my gig? And she's like, yes, now you're getting the gist of it. I was like, is it the Royal Wedding? Is your gig the Royal Wedding? She's like, Oh, we finally got there. Like, and it was, I was like, holy shit. So then, then I had to backtrack in my head of everything that she'd said up to that point of like what needed to be done. So she needs cocktails. And I was like, right, okay. Yeah. And she's like, okay, I need you to go and meet the Mossman brothers in Knightsbridge. Can you do that? I was like, yeah. So like a week later, I went to meet, went to Mossman's. Now in Mossman's in Knightsbridge, it's a private member's dining hall, right? In an old church. So I go in and I'm wearing a three-piece suit and I'm dressed up and I'm meeting Philip and Mark who are good friends today you know I've done so much of them and they're, they're awesome but it's very daunting so I was sitting there we had this whole meeting could we design the bar because we're turning a state, a state room into a nightclub in, inside Buckingham Palace how are we going to design the bar so we had to do a little thing and Philip goes what are you doing next week 
So then we'll meet, we'll meet at the palace and we'll go through the designs of the palace. And I'm like, just, and I just like, cool as cucumbers. So just on the same page, when you say palace, which palace do you mean? You know, in my head, I'm thinking Ali Pali, Crystal Palace, you know. But there is, there's some James's Palace, there's Kensington Palace, there's, and he's like, uh, Buckingham Palace. Yep. I was like, yeah, perfect. No, no, no stress. That's great. Just wasn't sure if it was. So I went to Buckingham Palace the next week, which is just bizarre. And then you walk in and you're just like, holy shit. Just on the walls, slices of history. Like pictures of like, oh, I can't even, I can't even like, Kings, like from like 1640s, and like it's just bonkers. And like, can you not just one thing? Don't walk in the middle of the carpet. You have to walk on the edges of the carpet. You can't walk down the centre of the carpet, you know, because you can't wear it out and stuff. And it's just as they're showing us around, I'm just going, holy fucking shit. Sorry for swearing, <laughs> but it was just like because I'm big on like I'm not history, but the older I've got, I'm like, this is. You're in Buckingham Palace, man. I was in my head, I'm like, where's the toilet? I need to go to the toilet again. <laughs> I need to use the toilet in Buckingham Palace. But yeah, and it was bizarre. We, had, we took the state room, we took the measurements and stuff. And then we, when we went back to do the gig, so we went to do the set up and stuff. And someone comes, oh, Charles is going to come round and he's going to have a look. So Charles is in the building. So, all right, cool. Turns out Charlie never came. That's Prince Charles, if you're listening. So, sorry, Charlie. Prince Charles. So then I was like, so then the, the next day, Queen's coming around, so it's like the Queen's gonna come around and have a look. And you're like, fucking Queen's gonna come around. It's as if the Queen's gonna walk in. You're like, well, it is her house. You know, it's like, and we were all like, well, I wonder what she's gonna come in wearing, like slippers and a dressing gown, like smoking a, smoking a, like, a like breakfast at Tiffany's kind of cigarette, like, hello. Uh, so we were throwing cases of stuff over, uh, like me and like, my, friend, my friend Clint throwing cases over the bar to each other when stocking the bar up. And we're working with a couple of other people that we've got friendly with, and we said, can you give us a hand? And then and someone like, I think Clint just kind of gives me like a, a tap in the nuts. Like, oh, you know, like kind of, like, oh, I clock him in the nuts and Clint clocks someone else. So then you've got like eight grown men all tapping each other in the nuts, right? And slowly, one by one, I glance over and I just see the queen walk in and I'm like, queen, queen, queen. So I just turn my back and I just kind of slide away. Like, then Clint sees and tight sides away. And then before you know it, like everyone just kind of goes, queen, queen, queen. But there's these two eyes and they're just, they're not seeing, they're not seeing it. And they're just there trying to hit each other in the nuts going, ooh, ooh, and I was like, queen, queen, queen. But it was awesome, it was really cool. And then she's tiny and I was like, that's the queen. She's like 10 foot away, you know? Um, and I was just blown away by that. You know, that was really surreal, bizarre. Um, giving each other vanilla nut taps whilst the queen's like 10 foot away. <laughs> yeah, it was a lovely case. It was brilliant. Yeah, it was really good. So tell me about the time that you met Muhammad Ali. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, I don't know why. That always slips my mind. And it's like one of the best stories. So I'm working, I, got, I had a contract for the House of America. So I, the, the Mossman brothers I did the Royal Wedding for, they're like, I, I, the first gig I got off the back of that was the House of America, running the bars for the, for, for the Americans, which is a closed house. And it's set up for all the athletes' parents to watch the games. It's, it's their little hub. Everything's free. There's a bud deck in there. So everything's like beer's free, food's free for the whole games. And so we're having, Sorry, is this the Olympics? Or? Yeah, the Olympics. Yeah. yeah, so I had 2012 in London. So we're having this morning briefing and someone's like, so Muhammad Ali's gonna come today, he's gonna open up the games, because the house is open before the games actually start. He's gonna open up the games, we're gonna show this little montage of his career, then he's gonna come out in his wheelchair with his wife. So in the green room, what we need is they've, they've asked for this rider for um, sweetened tea and unsweetened iced tea with a few other bits and bobs. I was like, yeah, cool. 
we had that morning briefing I forgot all about it you know it wasn't my job to specifically do it the rider was just put out there and someone then came to the bar at 4pm and I and they said oh we're looking for the iced tea where's the iced tea and then I was like oh shit right Muhammad Ali's coming yeah cool the iced tea and I was like Hey, it's okay. I'm already, I'm already doing that. It's fine. Is it for the green room? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Muhammad Ali's going to be arriving in 10 minutes. And I was like, fuck it, right, cool. So I ran down. And weirdly, I was trying to find... I remember I had to go down to the kitchen to find this iced tea. Because it's a specific American brand, like Lipton iced tea that he has. And they, but they had this crystallized version of it, you know? So no one could find the crystallized version. So I'm like, I'll just make it fresh. I think that was my kind of my mindset. I had to make a jug of it. I had to come in a specific jug of it. So I'm boiling this kettle, I run upstairs, I'm grabbing another point like that, and then you can see someone's like, Muhammad Ali's arriving in like two minutes, his car's pulling in now. So I'm like, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> So I run to the green room, I put, I put the glasses down, so I was really running back there. And I go downstairs and I get these jugs of iced tea, and I'm filling the jugs up with water, and I pour the iced tea in, a bit of lemon. And as I run back up the stairs, he's literally being wheeled round this corner. So I kind of buy, and he's got like two security guards, so I kind of tuck myself behind the security guard, and this kind of looks behind him, and I said, oh, I've got the tea for the green room. And he's like, all right, because he's like, who, who are you, dickhead? And why are you so close to me? You know. So I we go up to the, the green room doors, and Muhammad Ali's wife wheels him into this room. There's no one else in this room, by the way. Like it's just that he's the first person to go in, and then a security guard goes in with them, and then I go in after him, and then the other security guard closes the doors behind us. So then this guy goes, um, Muhammad Ali, just Mr. Ali, I'm just going to show you. Um, the montage that they're going to play you for tonight so you're aware of. So I'm like, oh, I stop preparing the tea. So I was like, um, just to let, just, just, hi guys. I was like, excuse me, sorry, um, who's sweet and who's unsweetened? She's like, oh, um, and his wife goes, I'm, um, I'm sweet, he's unsweetened. Okay, cool. And then they start playing this vid, this montage, which is about two and a half minutes long. So I want to say to Muhammad Ali, like, I think you're a bit of a legend. Um, and I want to say something. I've got this opportunity, though, so I, I can't. So I poured, like, I think I poured, like, to, I had to take two and a half minutes to make this, this, this tea, you know? Or it was already made. So I think I kind of took a lemon, squeezed it in the drink, rimmed the glass, you know? And I kind of, I really dragged out the process. And then I poured the tea in. And then as I just kind of placing the drinks down, she kind of says, thank you. And, they, and just... I was kind of holding on and she kind of looks up and I was like, and luckily the video had stopped and I said, I just need to take this opportunity to say that obviously, Mr. Ali, I've grown up with you. Um, what you've achieved in your career is absolutely phenomenal and you've been such an inspiration to me and many of my close friends and family and I just wanted to thank you and I wanted to wish you all the best. Um, and it was a really emotional time and he didn't say anything, right? And she, and she kind of said, thank you so much. And the security guard behind him kind of gave me one of those okay kind of like winks and was like, nice. <laughs> um, and I went out the room and I almost, I started welling up in tears. And I didn't, didn't actually cry, but I was really overcome with emotion. And it's because, like I was thinking about this like shortly after it happened. You know when you like, imagine if you saw someone, like a, like a loved one or something, and then you didn't see them for 20 years and you saw them, they were decrepit, old, shaking, couldn't talk. Muhammad Ali, I grew up with him. You grew up with him on the TV. Like, he had the biggest motor mouth, like, trash talker, but persona, but phenomenal boxer, phenomenal mind. And to see someone go from that to see someone decrepit, that can't talk, shaking in a wheelchair, it was almost like it was a relative of mine. And it's really weird to maybe people who are listening to this can connect with that, but it was like I'd, I'd seen a close relative, like, like deteriorate. And so it was, it was really sad. But it was a really good moment, you know? 
you're a top bartender, you're living the life in London, where did it all go wrong? What made you drop it all and move to Leeds to work at a Lloyd's call centre? <laughs> I just, I, 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 was, I was bartending in New York, uh, I, I did Greece, and then I moved to New York to bartend and I was there illegally for like nine months bartending and having the best time of my life. But I couldn't live in New York because I couldn't, it was just after 9-11, couldn't get a, I couldn't get a visa for love nor money. And I got stopped at customs, and I thought if I do this again, they're gonna—I'll get barred, you know, if I get caught. So I went back to London. My friend had just opened a bar in Camden, and he said you can come help me open it, which I did. And I was with this girl at the time, uh, and we kind of—she didn't like London. I don't. She didn't get on with it. She's from Leeds. It's a small city sometimes, but she didn't get on with New York either. So half of me was like, you don't like New York, you don't like London. What do you like? I like Leeds. Leeds is a shithole. We're not going to Leeds. And then, I've never been to Leeds, right? So, I was like, how can you not like New York or London? Which, these are cities I thrived in. So we split up, and she moved back to Leeds. And I kind of wasn't happy in London. Like, to, to, to do, it was 250 quid a day in studio time. A flat was like a grand. I was, you know, you were drinking in bars, going out after work. So there was no kind of life to be led there. And I kind of did miss this girl. So I said, listen, so I went up to Leeds to, to see Leeds, to chat to her and try and if we can like get back together. And like a, like a two bed flat in the city centre was 650. And all I wanted to do was play music. And that's when I was like, right, I put an ad on Gumtree, drummer wanted, <laughs> my likes, Dave Matthews, Jack Johnson, da, 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 and then obviously you replied. And then I think within the week or something, we were jamming, you know, yeah. so. Um, I, I moved up to Leeds and do you know why I really did like it like it was a compact city it reminded me of Cardiff so it's like a different accents um, but yeah it was the music scene was pumping up here you had like indie was a big thing with the Kaiser Chiefs and you know that and there was more bloody band rehearsal spaces you can shake a stick at and then I I couldn't work in bars because oh, I, I, I wanted us to gig at weekends you know and I didn't want to be tied down because I know you can't get a Saturday night off you know for anything so I turned down working in bars and I went to work at Lloyd's Bank in a call centre doing insurance retention which weirdly was good money but I was really bad at my job because I used to give I used to I was like Robin Hood I used to give this discount to everyone that came up oh you've been with us 10 years have some discount and my manager was like it's not how it works you can only give 5% and you shouldn't really give that I was like but they, the insurance has gone up every year. They've been with you 20, 10 years. Like, anyway, so that was my, my beef. But yeah, it's, um, I, bought, I bought my first house because of working at Halifax. So it's weird how things pan out. Like moving from London, coming here, buying a house. And then I went down to part-time. Then the Roadhouse Flair organiser job came up. So I could do that from Leeds. I had to be in London one day a month. I was getting paid 1,200 quid to organise a flare comp. 1,200 a month to organise a flare comp. It was like a no-brainer. <laughs> I was like, this is, but it's, 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 without that, I actually don't know where I'd be now. So, it's scary. Yeah, so we formed the band Pocket 3. What would you say your favourite gig was? <laughs> it's funny, because I remember, actually, this is one of the questions I do remember from when we did the first podcast. <laughs> it, was de- it was definitely the one in Hebden Bridge. Like, which is weird, because, like, the Brunel Social Clubs, you know, don't don't get me wrong, great sounds, you know. Legendary. And, uh, yeah, legendary <laughs> venues, but like 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 that. But then I was like, this, this place in Hebden Bridge, if you've never been to Hebden Bridge, it's like Brighton is the like they say is the gay capital. This is like the lesbian capital of the yeah. north or something like So we're in this pub and it's just we're just playing our songs, but it, it, it reminded me like when I when you would when I used to go to Somerset to visit friends or when I was in Cardiff, you used to go out to watch bands, but you didn't care what band they were, 
But like, and it was that mentality. These people came into this pub because there was a band playing on Friday nights and our tunes were funky. And we had Lucy on the brass and playing the saxophone and then funky, you like your drum beats. And it was just funky tunes. And everyone was just dancing. There's a guy with a dog. Someone's on a table. We did like a walk this way medley with suck my kiss or something. And <laughs> the, the mic span around the guy trying, it was just loose. It was but basically a mosh pit. <laughs> yeah, but it was just weird, but awesome. And I think I got on a chair and was playing a so I don't know, it was just... That yeah, was I remember the, that, uh, for that stupid competition over in Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> we were doing oh. the, uh, we were doing the, it was the audition stages, wasn't it? Yeah. And Andy was just freaking out, it's like, my bass won't work, my bass won't work, I can't get my bass to work. And he calls the, the technician over and he's like, you haven't plugged your bass in. <laughs> But that was like that was just yeah. Tell us about your dictaphone. I used to I used to have this little dictaphone and uh, well I used to be, I'd be in the street. Or I go idea for song. And or I just have I'd see something and I'd be like, good lyric. No man is an island. You know or like yeah. So I had this dictaphone full of stuff like my phone now like my my voice notes. It's just full of... It's still full of that, you know? And um, it's weird. I was going through stuff, and there's, like, 30-second snippets of guitar stuff, and I'm like, that's a really good lick or riff or, you know, or chord progression or something. But that's... Yeah, that's that dictaphone was kind of a bit legendary. I just saw I get this image of you in, like, Debenhams or something with your girlfriend, and you're just surrounded by bras or whatever, <laughs> and you're going, song number five. <laughs> but it was it was just like Captain's Log story 2476 it was like idea for song you know but there was some random stuff on there as well yeah your songs were usually topical about like banks being greedy or Ashley Cole having affairs or stories from your travels such as mushroom shakes you had on the beach tell us about that story yeah like I think I get to Thailand and my friend says to me like oh, if you go to Thailand I go to a place called Hajiao I remember writing it down in my book this is way before like internet and stuff you know like like facebook so i'm i i i, I, I go to, Co- to bangkok or Koh Samui, and i get the the ferry over to copenhagen and i see this sign said hajiao and i think it's about like flicked on my book and that's when my mate neil told me to go but neil was telling me stories about like mushroom like mushroom omelets but made with magic mushrooms <laughs> and i was like right so i'm on this beautiful and it's like this beach is probably 200 meters long i oh, know maybe a bit longer there and it's stunning and you normally like sometimes you have to get like depending if the paths are bad you have to get a boat to it we get I get there and I'm like this is awesome and they're like it doesn't seem like a very druggy kind of place you know it doesn't so then Wales won the five nations the Wales won the Grand Slam so I was sitting celebrating with like a little beer as the sun's going down really Bob Marley was playing actually I'll never forget it could you be loved and this guy comes back and he goes the guy goes oh mate I was going and I'm like yeah good man he's like what are you up to and I'm like oh, Wales has just won the I was like, where are you from? I was like, I'm not fucking here. We were just like chatting. Because I, I don't know why. Maybe I had something on me. Or maybe I tower. I don't know. So he's like, I mean, listen, we're going for a couple of, we're going for a couple of beers later. Come, come, come join us. So I said, what time are you meeting? He's like, seven. So I was like, I'll go and check this bar out first because it was off the beach. So I go into this bar and this is probably about 5 p.m. And I go in this bar. There's a little Thai guy by the bar. And I'm like, hey, you doing all right? He's like, can I just get a beer? So he goes, yeah, cool. No, there's no one else in there. So he gives me a beer. And I'm like, all right, cool, how much is that? He's like, oh, X amount of bar. So I was like, cool. So I sat there and he just gives me the remote control for the telly. And he goes, there you go, just, just watch what you want. And then we got, got a chat a bit. I was like, hey, dude, let me find this. I was like, oh, I can get some weed from. And he's like, and he just like, pulls his drawer open and he goes, there you go. So how much is that? He's like, 500 bucks. And I was like, there you go. 
sweet, cool, that was easy. And then I was like, because I wanted to get the mushroom part. Where did you get the mushrooms from? So I said, uh, you don't do mushrooms as well, do you? And he goes, yeah, you, you want a shake? And I was like, I don't know, my friend had an omelette. He goes, well, we don't make omelettes yet, bro. I was like, is shake good? And he's like, yeah. And so he goes under the table, like he goes on the bar and he gets this like, well, imagine like a Tesco's carrier bag full of mushrooms. And he just fills this blender cup up with mushrooms, right? And they're not, they're, they weren't small. I don't remember them being small. Maybe they were. Even if they were small, this goes to show you. Fills the fucking blender cup up with mushrooms. Mixes it with Lipton iced tea from a can, some sugar, and it looked like, it's like brown, it looked like gravel sand, you know? And it's a, it's a bucket of it. Not like glass, a bucket. Like things that like, there's, it's like two liters worth of it. So I, I start drinking this bucket of it, and I, you know, within about 15 minutes, I finished it. And by the time I got to the bucket, the bottom of the bucket, it started to kick in. Like I can remember going, oh, this feels weird. Whew. So I said to the guy, dude, like, let me pay for that because I, I need to just get out of here. <laughs> so by the time of me getting out of there, I bought some Rizzlers for the for the weed he bought. I get, I walk, I walk 400 meters back to the beach, and it's dark by now. I've been in there for an hour. It's about 6 p.m. I'm on the beach, so, so I'm sitting there and I'm like looking at the stars, and it was like. Oh, and it all starts kicking in, right? And then you know, the people are now having dinner on the beach. So they lay out all the tables on the beach and people are starting coming out and having dinner. So now I'm just lying on this, like the sand or the deck chair and I'm like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Then I hear Mr. Jones by the Counting Crows playing at the end of the beach. And I'm like, it's my favourite song. I've got to go. I've got to go. So I get up and I try and walk. Now, the only way I can describe it is my legs were jelly. I couldn't move my legs. Now... If you've ever seen like Captain Jack Sparrow walk, it's like all gangly. I couldn't move, like just trying to walk and I couldn't walk. And I can remember people sitting there just laughing because I like, one leg was struggling to get in front of the other. You know, it's like, and then I finally collapsed and the timeline's a bit blurry. I might have, I sat, I sat down for maybe a couple of, like an hour. Then I finally made it to the bar where Mr. Jones was playing. Of course, Mr. Jones ain't no, no longer playing. <laughs> there was a couple of German guys in there trip in and then I'm like I need to get out of here I, I, I can't be in here so then it's dark and I go and find myself a corner on the beach at which point I think I can live off the land I'm like it's okay I don't need money so I pull all everything that's in my pockets I pull out I take my top off I start rubbing myself in sand I'm giggling like a small child and I, I must have been there for like four hours it seemed like two minutes right but I had I kept this necklace around my neck which was where I stay in right the only thing I didn't have on me was my passport. So I managed to go, right, I'm, I'm staying here. Because like, I'm realising now, I can't remember my own name. I couldn't remember who I was. And if you hear about people in the 60s, like, did too much acid, you know, it can have a really bad effect. So I'm like, I need to get back. Where am I staying? So I go back to my apartment and I found it eventually. It said room 76 of this. And I found it and I go in and I'm like, whoa. And I remember just saying to myself, I need this to stop because I couldn't remember my name. Eventually I found my passport, which I'd hidden underneath my pillow. And I had it up against my face. And I was going, I'm Oliver David Pluck. I'm Oliver David Pluck. And just like that, it just like someone switched the light and it just it stopped. And I was like, holy fucking shit. <laughs> and I looked at my watch and by this time it was probably about half one in the morning, right? And I was like, what the hell? So I'm like, I need to go back and see that guy. It was like phenomenal. Like it was the best experience, but weirdest experience. So I go down the beach and as I'm walking to this bar, I see this stuff on the floor and I'm like, holy shit. And I look at that. It's all my stuff. Like all my traveler's checks, which is about 400 quid's worth of traveler's checks. Um, bit of cash. So I, go, I was like, fuck, what's the chance of this? Go back to the bar and I was like, where's the small guy that works here? And I'm like, there's no small guy that works here. I'm like, what? There's a guy that works here. 
And anyway, it turns out that guy doesn't. He was. He owns the building. He's like the janitor. He doesn't. The bar doesn't open till six. So he was just like taking a bit of cash. But it turns out, like later, I was there for like two weeks. When you make a mushroom shake, you only put like a handful of mushrooms in, right? This guy didn't know shit, man. He put like a whole blender cup full of mushrooms in. So the, the song that we came up with, which which I wrote, which was called Kodak Moment, was about taking if you got like a mental picture. If I could have taken them, like if I could have held that moment in my hands, you know, and I, that just for you know, it was like the best feeling. But then I didn't when it got too bad, but. A Kodak moment is just that moment in time. The, 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 it was a, it was coming up to a full moon. The full moon was over the beach. I like the car. Is it, no, it's like a pre-chorus or something. But you say you don't sound right, and it's like hey, yeah, I can't yeah, play. yeah. So it's like <laughs> you don't sound right. Just, I just can't play right. So it's having a conversation with yourself. Who am I? I'm Ollie Pluck. Well, you, you don't sound right. And then obviously playing a guitar and it's like, well, you can't play. Because I had a guitar there as well, actually. I, then I had a guitar. And I think I tried to pick it up and I was like, you just can't play, right? You just don't sound so right to me. Yeah. So it's those little things. Um, and there's that little breakdown where it goes, uh, baby girl, get off the sand and just hold that sunset in your hand. And yeah, just kind of those really good, really kind of feel good film. You feel good. So I think that's the aspect I wanted to get across, that kind of. Yeah. I wouldn't, wouldn't do it again. You know what? You, you, you just do something and you do it well, and it was just perfect. And you think, I'll never get that back. So you just never do it again. You know? So, yeah, wow, Kodak moment. <laughs> so then, after Pocket of Three, you set up your, your two bars. There's a the East Village and um, Epicurus. Epicurus, that was it. Epicurus death and Death and Taxes, taxes yeah. yeah. Just tell us like the, the unique selling points of these two bars because they were very different bars, weren't they? Yeah, the East Village, I obviously after working in New York, when I went to village, visit it, when I first looked at it in Hyde Park, Hyde Park was, is a shithole, still is, you know, but it's a student area, it's got cool people in it, cool artists, cool, you know, students, and there was a cool punk club that started the punk movement called CBGBs in New York, on the Lower East Side, by a guy called Hilly Crystal, and I thought... Well, let's open a really cool dive bar based on the Lower East Side of New York, somewhere that's just got cool music, which is just inviting for everyone, and try and be that, without sounding too arrogant, be that CBGBs, where we can kind of be something cool in an area, and hopefully it will just give it a different dynamic, because it's been the same. It's been the same for the past 80 years. So that was the East Village, um, which is a slice of like the Lower East Side and kind of Hyde Park, which is great because a lot of everyone that comes here goes says, I don't feel like I'm in Hyde Park. I feel like even American people go, this, I feel like I'm in America. Like just because of the service, the drinks, it was, um, it really is, it's got a special feel to it. Um, and then Epicurus, who was obviously a um, Greek philosopher, who kind of had this thing about, you kind of, eat, drink, and be merry, I suppose. That kind of hedonistic, kind of gluttonous, yeah, let's all just eat and drink. And so there was a barn that had, you can only fit 20 people, 25 people in it downstairs, 25 people upstairs. And then everyone that had that bar previously, you use the upstairs as an overspill. But imagine if you're 25 people downstairs and you and your girlfriend come in and you're like, right, you can go upstairs to the overspill. You're literally just sat in an open room. So I was like, let's do two different bars. So downstairs, it was called Epicurus. It was, and it was all about, cheese boards, food, wine, and a handful of cocktails. So we had a 4 a.m. license, so you could do cheese boards till 4 a.m. So if you're on a night out in Leeds on the piss, and you're like, let's just go somewhere quiet, we covered that, that, that market. 
But upstairs, I could open this thing called Death and Taxes. Uh, and that was like a carpeted members lounge. So it was all like rich armchairs, you know, and, and it really had like a captain's table in there, which was mahogany. And, and everyone was just said, this is like a cross between like Winston Churchill's living room office. And it was just, but it was all beautiful, sexy drinks, candle lit. And yeah. So they're very different. I'm big on concepts. Like when we when we played in in bands, you know, the Pocket Three, like playing in the pocket, like all the songs had concepts. You know, it was all even. I, I, that, that comes from Fridays. That comes from working at Fridays. And well, one of your concepts for that bar was um, the way that your your cocktails came from music. You could listen to the song that inspired this particular cocktail. Yeah, that, it's really sad that that didn't we, that didn't that didn't come all the way to fruition really because the idea was. I wanted to do this cocktail menu where you, you, you choose, you listen to 30 seconds of a song, and there's only 10 cocktails, 30 seconds of each song, and you choose your cocktail, not by what, you, what, what it's in it, you listen to the song and you choose, it's fucking brilliant, the more I talk about it, I'm like, damn it, it's like, so like, one of the songs was Space Oddity by David Bowie, you know, and like, imagine listening to it and then you go, right, so when you get that drink arrives, you put the earphones on and you listen to the whole song. So from the first initial smell, the sip, it kind of, it matches music and that's never been done. And I was like, picking a, pick, but you don't know what's in it. Like, even when you get it, you're like, you really have to have an open mind because people are like, I don't like tequila. And then you make them a drink, like, what's in that? You like tequila. And they're like, it's the best, you know? So yeah, and I was, I, I'd love to do it again, but um, some, of the, some of the ideas we came up with, like one of the songs was, um, no regret rien by Edith Piaf. No, no regret rien, and it was just like that's phenomenal. It's a great, such a powerful song, and the words. But you, oh, that's right. You get the words as well. So the ingredients were taken from the words. You sometimes said that you wanted to open a speakeasy. Is that something that you still want to do? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't think of anything worse. I'd rather watch paint dry. Um, <laughs> Speakeasy, they've all been done to death, really, you know, um, and it's it's cool, it's trendy and stuff, but I'd rather spend all my time working on myself or helping others, more importantly, you know. I think alcohol, well, it's funny, because I, I, now I work with people to try and get overcome alcohol and stuff like that, but yeah, I still sell it through the East Village. <laughs> but I was just literally talking, um, talking, I was talking to myself, actually, just having these thoughts about, down here where we are now hosting um free sessions free doing free life coaching sessions but like doing talks with students on things i think if the things i know now which if i was told 20 years ago might change the course of how i how i did things and where i went so i thought instead of you know i'm still gonna obviously do coaching and offer my services out but I'm, i will do three do free sessions group sessions down here collectively for students offering like hospitality students no, oh. just anyone that's just wants some uh, some life guidance and just kind of uh, being able to offer something back, which I thought would be uh, really awesome. And it might help some people. Some people might go, yeah, but there's some really good work uh, framework sessions and some workbook stuff that I've done that you like. There's some really there's some really good things on the future, and if I could just help more and more people. So doing a speakeasy, if it's going to be a speakeasy, it's going to be a life coaching speakeasy. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad idea. It's not. Is it? <laughs> Well, that wraps it up, so thank you for talking to me for a second time today. And honestly, man, thank you. It's been great to reminisce, and yeah, thanks for your time and, yeah. uh, and doing this. Yeah, amazing. Thank you. Well, that's the press save this time on the uh, tape. <laughs> Cheers, dude. Take care. Yeah, I've got seven days 
left in June. The Corsair Road was pumping, the people they make the move. Yeah, I don't know when I failed to see if this was right for me. You'd be touching the deepest parts of me. Cause I've got seven days just left in June. Yeah, and the stars, they figure it out. And they revolve around the moon. See, I don't know when I failed to see if this is right for me. You were touching the deepest parts in me. Sunset from out of your head 